In the summer of 1939, American preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse took his family to the coast of France on vacation. The family photos that Barnhouse took on the beaches of Normandy were later used by the Allies to plan the D-Day invasion. You see, a war was brewing in Europe. No one knew how far Hitler would go in pursuit of his militaristic ambitions. The atmosphere was tense. People everywhere were preparing for what was next. In September of 39, Barnhouse left his family in France for a series of meetings in Belfast, Ireland. Already, commercial flights to England had been canceled, so he took a boat across the English Channel. All over France, he heard the bell tolling, calling men to mobilize for war. French troops were everywhere. On his way to Belfast, Barnhouse learned by radio that Germany had just invaded Poland. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain had given Hitler an ultimatum. He had until 11 a.m. that Sunday or England would declare war on Germany. Well, Barnhouse arrived in Belfast late Saturday night, just in time for the Sunday services the next day. The last words that his host pastor said to him before leaving him that night were these. He said, I do hope you will have a good sermon. It may be the last some of the men will ever hear. Talk about preaching under pressure. That was definitely it. Well, the next day, the sanctuary was packed. Everyone was eager to hear from God in a time of such crisis. The congregation was singing hymns when one of the elders walked onto the platform and he slipped Barnhouse a note which read, No reply from Hitler. The prime minister has declared war. Seconds later, the guest speaker that day was introduced and Donald Grain Barnhouse walked to the pulpit. Here was his text. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, which reads, Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. He began his sermon listing the horrors of war. And after every gloomy description that he uttered, he said these words, Don't be troubled. It sounded something like this. Millions of homes will be broken up. Don't be troubled. Children will be torn from their mothers. Husbands and brothers will perish in battle. Don't be troubled. Innocent blood will flow like a river. Children will be left orphans. Don't be troubled. As the tension mounted, the preacher turned his eyes towards God and he shouted, Don't be troubled. And then he told the church, These words are either the words of a madman or God. How can they be spoken to men who have hearts that can weep and bowels that can be gripped with compassion? Unless Jesus is God, he has no right to tell us, don't be troubled. Of course, then Barnhouse went on to explain that Jesus is God. That he is the God of history. That he is in charge of every circumstance. That all that happens in our world flows through a channel that has been dug by God. Though man's sin causes him to act like a savage beast at times, attacking and devouring his fellow man, even in the midst of man's insanity, God still controls history. 
He hasn't fallen asleep at the helm. He is awake on the bridge. He sees the future and he is in control of events no matter how terrible. And this is the message of Habakkuk's prophecy. For even in the midst of calamity and tragedy and uncertainty and confusion, our God is still in control. God's people are not to let the momentary pandemonium rob them of God's eternal peace. The just, that is the child of God, shall live by faith. The torch that guides us through the darkness of the unknown and the unseen is the light of faith. When life gets confusing, we're to walk by faith, not by sight. This is the message of Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk begins his prophecy in verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now Habakkuk lived at the end of the 7th century B.C. He was a contemporary of King Josiah and of the prophet Jeremiah. He also may have known Daniel and Ezekiel. There is a legend that relates to Habakkuk. It's found in the Jewish Apocrypha. It's a group of extra-biblical writings. It's not inspired scripture, but it's interesting nonetheless. The story goes Habakkuk was taking dinner to workers out in the fields. Suddenly an angel appeared. And he told him that Daniel was in the lion's den in Babylon. The angel then grabbed Habakkuk by the hair and flew him to Babylon, where he fed his food to Daniel in the midst of the lions. Daniel thanked God for the meal, and Habakkuk boarded the return flight back to Judea. If it's true, it was one hair-raising experience, that's for sure. The facts are... We know nothing of Habakkuk other than the little that we glean from his prophecy here. Apparently, he was a priest. He was also a prophet. He was also a musician, we'll find later, a songwriter who loved to worship God. Habakkuk was certainly a devout man. He was concerned about the nation of Judah's declining morals. He was knowledgeable of God's justice and righteousness. And Habakkuk was a thinker. He was aware of world events. He knew what was going on around him, and he thought through these issues. Most importantly, Habakkuk was a deeply spiritual man. He desired to know God's plan and God's purposes. And Habakkuk certainly knew how to pray and to wait on God. He was a man of prayer. Here was a man who lived in crisis times, and God taught him some extremely valuable lessons. Here's an outline for this brief book. In chapter 1, we find Habakkuk wondering and then wrestling. In chapter 2, we see him watching and waiting. And in chapter 3, Habakkuk is worshiping and witnessing. In chapter 1, he begins in a valley. In chapter 2, he climbs into the tower. And in chapter 3, he ascends to the mountain. In chapter 1, he sighs. In chapter 2, he seeks. And in chapter 3, he sings. Habakkuk's prophecy begins with a sob, but it ends with a song. The prophecy of Habakkuk is for all who have struggled with the presence of evil in this world and ask the question, why? Verse 2. 
O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. The Hebrew word translated cry here means to roar or to scream. Habakkuk is so disturbed over the evil he sees. He's made the startling discovery that life isn't always fair. Injustice and inequity has slapped him between the eyes. He feels helpless to change these things. And what adds to his misery is he wonders why God doesn't do anything to restore order. When is God going to punish the wicked and deliver the righteous? This is what's on his mind. Verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Habakkuk is asking God, why do you reveal this wickedness to me? I can't change it and you won't change it. Why are you tormenting me like this? He says, therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk is describing the justice system of his day that no longer protects the innocent. He's saying that the courts in Jerusalem place a greater emphasis on a criminal's rights than on the victim's rights. Lawbreakers are being caught, he says, but there were so many loopholes, there's so much corruption in the system, there's so many weak-kneed judges that the criminals don't stay off the streets for long. The judicial system in Habakkuk's day was broken. And I suppose many would say ours in America today is too. Notice the ironical phrases in verse 4. Justice never goes forth, but judgments proceed. I mean, the courts are active, but we never get justice. Have you ever thought the same? The courts were full. The judges and lawyers and clerks were all busy. But why was it justice never got served? You know, in the world today, America has about 5% of the world's population, but 95% of the world's lawyers. wonder what we did to deserve that. 5% of the population, 95% of the lawyers. Frivolous, unscrupulous lawsuits overload our legal dockets. The wicked and the greedy Jews of Habakkuk's day were using the courts to pad their pockets to further their agendas. In essence, Habakkuk is saying, the righteous are outnumbered, we're surrounded. But the real question behind his legal observations was a theological one. Evil people abound. And why isn't God doing something about it? That was the big question. Where is God in these wicked days? It's Habakkuk's question. And that obviously is a question we could ask today. God responds to Habakkuk in verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Habakkuk had accused God of not doing anything about the evil in the land. Instead, God says, not so. I'm working even as we speak. In fact, my plan is going, on, is going to blow your mind. 
when you see what I've got planned, it's going to knock your socks off. You'll be utterly astounded when you see what I intend to do. Habakkuk had assumed that God was inactive, but to the contrary. God was at work in ways that Habakkuk had never dreamed. And this is often the case with us. We get such tunnel vision. We zero in on one way to do things. We draw broad conclusions from our narrow experiences. Whereas God, he thinks outside the box. He's working. He's dealing in ways that we don't understand. You've heard the expression, it's a jungle out there. You ever heard that expression? Of course you have. And indeed it is. At times, life is like a journey through a thick jungle brush. You're whacking with your machete, clearing a path, moving forward one step at a time. You can't see more than a couple of feet in front of you. You're wondering if the guide you're following really knows where he's going. Well, for the Christian, God is our God. And he knows exactly where we're going and what he's doing. From his vantage point, there's no panic. There's no problem. If you're following him, you're precisely on course. You might be plowing through that jungle, but God is at work up ahead. He's making provisions that you don't even know about. You don't even know you're going to need. All you can see is the leaf in your face. All you can see is what's right there at your feet. But just around the corner, God has already hung a bridge across the raging river. Or he's built a shelter to protect you from the wild animals. Or he's prepared for you a table of delicious fruit. God is already answering prayers that you've yet to pray. His hand is at work, even though to us it's invisible. Well, God tells Habakkuk in the next few verses exactly what he plans to do to judge the evil about which the prophet is so frustrated. When Habakkuk voiced his complaint, God's plan was already in motion. Verse 6, for indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. At the time, the Assyrians Assyrians were the dominant world empire. Not the Chaldeans. The Assyrians were the dominant world empire. And they had been for some 250 years. When Habakkuk writes, the middle of the 7th century B.C., Assyria was actually at its zenith. The Assyrian Empire was as strong as it would ever be. There was no reason for Habakkuk to suspect a change in global politics. Yet the Lord tells Habakkuk to hold on to his hat. For the mighty Assyrian Empire is about to go down and the upstart Chaldeans or Babylonians will rise to power. And that is exactly what happened. History records it. 
Babylon did conquer Assyria in 612 B.C., then defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. You see, here's God's plan. He's going to bring this band of Babylonian warriors and their king Nebuchadnezzar to power to judge the evil in Judah and to address the prophet's complaint. Verse 11 continues God's prediction of this future Babylonian kingdom. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, describing this power to his God. After spending the last several weeks in Daniel, we know the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a mighty king. He was chosen. He was actually used by God. Here, this king, you remember Nebuchadnezzar was called the tool of of Yahweh. But he all let it go to his head. Nebuchadnezzar got proud. He got the big head. You remember in the king's vision that Daniel had interpreted, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. But he wasn't content with being the head of gold. For when he raised up an image in the plain of Dura, guess what? It was solid gold. In other words, he wanted greater than God intended. He didn't want to just be the head. He wanted to be the entire image. He wanted his kingdom to be one that would rule forever. You recall in Daniel chapter 4 verse 30, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar one night, he took a walk out on the balcony of his palace. He was looking out over the city of Babylon and he said to himself, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power? And for the honor of my majesty. And God must have been eavesdropping in as he talked to himself. And God was offended by his pride. For God was the one that had raised him up. God brought madness upon the king. Drove him crazy. He had a temporary bout of insanity. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He was brought to his knees. You remember he was let out into the fields. He roamed like a wolf, you know, for a number of years. The God of Daniel made Nebuchadnezzar successful, and yet the king had taken the credit. God had risen him up and made him victorious, but he had elevated himself with pride, and God knows how to humble the proud. Never forget that. God knows how to humble the proud. But here's what happens to Habakkuk. It's interesting. God's explanation here raises more questions in Habakkuk's head than it really answers. For Habakkuk now asks God in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Habakkuk understands that God is going to judge Judah's sin. He thinks that's a good thing. It needs to be done. God has marked Judah for correction. But, he says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Now, this is what Habakkuk just can't get. Why would God judge the Jews 
at the hands of a people like the Babylonians who were more wicked than the people that, they were, be, that were being judged. See, see his problem? Yes, the Jews had declined morally. Yet compared to these idolatrous, barbaric Babylonians, they were still choir boys. Habakkuk is thinking, God, you, you might be at work, but what you're doing now just doesn't make sense. In the beginning, Habakkuk wondered. He wondered why God seemed inactive. And he discovered that God wasn't inactive. God was at work. But now he wrestles. Habakkuk wrestles with why God seems so inconsistent and why he would use such a wicked heathen nation like the Babylonians to judge his chosen people, Judah. Verse 14. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? In Habakkuk's mind, it's as if history has gone berserk. He's wrestling with what he sees as inconsistencies. I know there is this holy, righteous God. I know he's behind the scenes. I know he's calling the shots. But this is not the way I imagined him to work. Have you ever thought the same? Of course you have. It looks like to me, from the way history is unfolding, that circumstances are occurring randomly, that nothing is making much sense. Henry Ford said the same thing as Habakkuk, but just in three words. He said, history is bunk. That's what Habakkuk is suggesting here. He's wrestling with the rhyme and reason of history. Is it bunk? Or is God truly in control? I'm sure you've heard the play on words, history is his story. Well, is that really true? Or is history just an unguided chain of random events and accidents? Verse 15. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them they share their sumptuous and their food plentifully. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Again, Habakkuk is moaning the Babylonians. Is it right for them to prey on nations like a fisherman goes out and catches fish? They get hungry and so they catch a few fish and they think they're false gods for it and have a sumptuous meal, then only to get hungry again and go back for more and create more battles and more warfare and so forth. Is this the way it really works, he's asking? See, Habakkuk is thinking, it's just not like God for him to allow a wicked, proud nation like the Babylonians to devour another more righteous nation like Judah. At the end of chapter 1, we've got a prophet who is perplexed. He's trying to square what he sees God do with who he knows God to be. And sometimes that can be tough. At times, God works in ways that are mysterious to us. And so here's what he does, chapter 2. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see 
what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. What do you do when God doesn't make sense? When life goes haywire, when all your conclusions end in confusions, when you can't reconcile horrible circumstances with the hands of a loving God, what do you do? Do you abandon what you know of God and start jumping to the wrong conclusions? Or do you seek the Lord? Do you seek after the Lord? Habakkuk decides to ascend into the tower and wait on God. You see, rather than jump to conclusions, Habakkuk climbs to get the right perspective. I want to say that again. Rather than jump to conclusions, he climbs to get the right perspective. I love this. The prophet ascends to the top of the wall. He climbs to the towers of Jerusalem. He gets on top of the walls of the ancient city. He gets alone to hear from God. Rather than draw false assumptions, Habakkuk gives God an opportunity to explain himself. He's even open to correction. He wants God to set him straight if need be. He's no doubt confused. But rather than get haughty, Habakkuk gets humble. Why is it when we're confused, we get haughty? We get arrogant. We get proud. We think we know it all. No, he was confused. But rather than get haughty about it, he got humble. He acknowledges that he doesn't know all that there is to know about God. That he can be wrong. Habakkuk climbs on his knees. And my friends, that is the highest anyone can climb, is when you climb on your knees. He seeks God's perspective. Hey, whenever life throws you a curve, you have a choice to make. You can jump or you can climb. You can jump to conclusions and draw the wrong conclusions about God and about your circumstances, or you can climb spiritually. And have a conversation with God. This is also the issue, of course, in the book of Job. You remember for 39 chapters, Job and his pals, they jumped to all kinds of conclusions. Wrong conclusions, bizarre conclusions. It's all about jumping to conclusions for 39 chapters. It's only in the last five chapters of the book of Job that Job settles his heart and reacquires some humility. Listens to God and lets God speak. Finally shuts up long enough to let God speak. In moments of perplexity, you can fold up your faith, you can give up on God, or you can fortify your faith, and you can grow in God. And here Habakkuk chooses the latter. He literally chooses the latter. And he climbs to the top of Jerusalem's walls, into the tower. To hear from his God. Now before we leave this verse, I want us to notice four attitudes that Habakkuk employs in seeking God in crisis times. It's a good model for us. You see, it's possible to pray, it's possible to seek God, and yet God not answer because we've got the wrong attitude. Notice in this verse Habakkuk's fourfold attitude. I'm going to give you four words. Determination, then isolation, 
then humiliation, and then expectation. First, pay attention to the prophet's determination. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch. You hear a note of determination, a note of resolve in those words? I will stand my watch. Implied is that Habakkuk is not coming down until he hears from God. You know, so often we don't get answers to our prayers because we give up too easily. Moses fasted 40 days and nights before God spoke to him. If we don't get an answer in five minutes, we're ready to throw in the towel and conclude that nobody's at home. In Jeremiah 29 verse 13, God baits the hook. He says, you will seek me and find me when? When? You search for me with all your heart. He rewards determination, not half-heartedness. Well, second, notice the prophet's isolation. Habakkuk climbs to the top of the ramparts. He goes up on top of the walls of Jerusalem into the tower. Whenever I'm in Jerusalem, man, you want to find me? Go to the walls. I love to walk on top of the walls of Jerusalem. I've done it many, many times now. Whenever our tour arrives in Jerusalem, I always try to make the walls our very first stop. The first thing we do in Jerusalem is a walk on top of the walls. It's so much fun. And it's amazing how peaceful, how quiet it is on top of the walls, especially in contrast to the chaos in the streets below. You go through the Damascus Gate and you're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. At street level, it's hard to focus on God. It's hard to focus on anything when you're on those streets. You're worried about somebody running up and snatching your camera or picking your pocket. It's very disturbing down on street level. But when you get up on top of the walls, there are no distractions. It's, it's almost like you've climbed above. It's almost like now it's just heaven. On, you in heaven. You in God. It's a wonderful experience. You know, God speaks to us in a still, small voice. I think that means that we have to quiet ourselves to hear Him. That means it's necessary, if we really want to hear from God, to find a quiet place. To maybe find a quiet time. To certainly cultivate a quiet heart. Do you have a quiet place where you go and seek the Lord? I hope you do. Do you have a quiet time? Maybe it's after you get all the kids in bed. You give God a little time at the end of the night. Maybe it's before everybody wakes up in the morning. You need a quiet place. You need a quiet time. You especially need to cultivate a quiet heart. Reminds me of the Indian from the reservation. He was visiting a friend in New York City. They were walking down the street when the Indian stopped. And he said to his friend, he says, I hear a cricket. His friend replied, that's so silly. You can't possibly hear a cricket in this noisy place. No, the Indian, he insisted. He said, no, I hear a cricket. As a matter of fact, he walked over to one of these concrete planters there on the street. He dug his hands into the soil. And amazingly, he pulled out a tiny little cricket. His friend was amazed. 
But the Indian said to him, he said, it's really not such a big deal, for we all train our ears to hear what we want to hear. He said, let me demonstrate. He reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a handful of coins. And he suddenly tossed those coins down onto the street. And everybody within a block turned and looked in that direction. Hey, everybody in New York City recognizes the sound of money. The Indian had made his point. We hear what we want to hear, don't we? We hear what we've trained our ear to hear. Habakkuk Habakkuk isolated himself to hear the voice of God. And then thirdly, notice the prophet's humiliation. Habakkuk expects a rebuke. Now usually when we expect a rebuke, we don't want to pray. We don't want to spend time with God. But, But Habakkuk goes to God knowing that chances are he's going to get rebuked. He's going to get corrected. He wants to be corrected. He says, to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He wants to be corrected. You see, correction isn't always easy to handle. It's the rare person, humble enough to see the value in correction. But correction is so important. We should always want to go to God. We should, our prayer should always be, Lord, to see what you would want to say to me and to answer when I am corrected. Lord, I need to be corrected every day. You know, I want to be like Jesus, and I'm not there yet. I need to be corrected. We need to seek correction and love correction and want correction. Here, Habakkuk, he wants to be corrected because he's sure he's the one in error. He knows the problem isn't God. It has to be him. And this is a safe assumption for us, is it not? Isaiah 55 verse 9 reminds us, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, when God doesn't make sense, it's safe to assume it's due to a lack of our understanding, not any weakness on the part of God. We're the ones that need correcting, not God. And then notice fourthly, Habakkuk's expectation. The prophet says, I will watch to see what he will say to me. Not what he might say to me, not what I hope he says, but I will watch to see what he will say to me. That means that when you pray, do you pray with pen and paper in hand? When you pray, do you really expect God to speak to you? You should. Whenever I pray, I sit down with my Bible with a piece of paper and a pen because I'm expecting God to speak to me. Are you ready to receive? Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and then check this out, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God expects to be expected. That's the truth. He wants an expectant heart. God expects our expectation. And this is what happened to Habakkuk. After he ascended to the ramparts, verse 2 tells us, Then the Lord answered me and said, 
write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. God's answer to Habakkuk was not only for Habakkuk, but for everyone else as well. He was to emblazon it on a billboard. He was to write it plainly on the tablet so others could understand God's truth, then apply it, and then run with it. He says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. God is warning Habakkuk that he'll have to wait to see the completion of what he's about to be shown. But be patient, Habakkuk. God's word will be fulfilled. As we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. Some people have a lot of faith, but they don't have much patience. Some people got lots of patience, but they don't have any faith. It takes both faith and patience to inherit God's promises. Remember, the farmer never reaps in the same season that he sows. He sows his seed. Then he has to endure that long, hot summer with nothing to show for his efforts. But if he's patient, if he doesn't sell the farm in frustration, in due season he will reap if he faints not. He just needs patience. And so do we. If we're to grow spiritually, we need patience. We never reap in the same season that we sow. Always remember that. That's why we need endurance. We need to follow God. We need to continue to serve Him. We need to be persistent. And then with patience, we'll reap the rewards. And then verse 4. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in Him, but the just shall live by His faith. Did you hear about the guy who thought he was so great? He was so cool. He was so fantastic. He was the greatest person on the earth. He had himself cloned. He thought this world would be a better place if it were more of me. But after a while, this clone learned some dirty language. Became quite a vulgar creature. Well, the man hated to be around himself now. This guy always spewing out ugly things. And so one day, he just had enough of the clone. He pushed the clone off the cliff. Just pushed him off the edge of the cliff. Well, the man was immediately arrested. He was charged with a felony. And what was his crime? Making an obscene clone fall. Making an obscene clone fall. Yeah, you get it? Yeah. But it was pride that got the man in trouble. And you see, pride was the sin of the Babylonians. It's why Babylon fell. See, the the proud man always falls. But the just shall live by his faith. God will punish the wicked. He will reward the righteous, but the just shall live by faith. That means that along the way, situations won't always be clear. Life won't always seem fair. The life of the righteous will require faith. What a message to Habakkuk. For at this moment, 
He was living by sight. He couldn't see God at work. He was living by smarts. He couldn't figure out what God was doing. It didn't make sense to him. He was living by sentiment. Emotionally, he was frustrated. He was roaring and screaming. The situation didn't look right. It didn't seem right. It didn't feel right. But we as believers are not to decipher situations by how they look or seem or feel. We're to live by what? By faith. That's how we're to live. We need to trust God in every circumstance. No matter how it looks, no matter how it seems, no matter how it feels. Do you believe that God is, wor- God is at work in your life right now even though you don't see Him? Do you believe that He is wise even when what He's doing might not make sense to you right now? Do you believe God is still wonderful even when He doesn't tickle your senses and cause you to feel this little bubbly happiness at the moment? Do you believe He's still wonderful? Even when you can't observe Him or understand Him or experience Him, you can still trust Him. And sometimes this is the test of real faith. The just shall live by his faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. It really capsulizes God's requirements for man. It's interesting, in the 3rd century AD, there was a Jewish rabbi named Simla. He noted that Moses had given the Hebrews 613 laws. This rabbi divided the law of Moses into 365 negative commandments, as it turns out one prohibition for every day of the year, and 248 positive commandments. That was Simla. He had weeded it down to 613 commands. When you read Psalm 15, you go back later and do it, you'll discover that David summarizes the law in just 11 commandments. In Isaiah 33, verse 15, the law gets reduced again, this time down to six commandments. Walk righteously, speak righteously, despise oppression, be honest, don't listen to evil, and don't look on evil. But in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, Micah reduces the law to three principles, to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. But here, Habakkuk reduces the law of God to a single commandment. The just shall live by his faith. And this was the verse that captured the heart of the Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul lived on this verse. It was from this verse that he hammered out the doctrine of justification by faith. Three times in the New Testament... Paul quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In Romans 1 verse 17, in Galatians 3 verse 11, and in Hebrews 10 verse 38. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is the seed from which the entire New Testament sprouts. I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. You see, the book of Romans is about God's work of justification. So in Romans... The emphasis is on the word just. In Romans, you read this verse, the just shall live by faith. 
Galatians teaches us that we're not just saved by faith, but we also live by faith, that we're saved not by the works of the law, but by faith. And so the emphasis in Galatians is the word faith. The just shall live not by law, not by works. The just shall live by faith. That's the emphasis in Galatians. And in the book of Hebrews, Jewish believers are encouraged not to turn back to Judaism. Rather, they need to live a lifestyle of faith. And so in Hebrews, the emphasis is on the word live. And so it reads, the just shall live by faith. Paul was all over this verse. I mean, the just shall live by faith. Yeah, but that's not all. The just shall live by faith. Yeah, but that's not all. The just shall live by faith. He had this verse. Man, this motivated him. In a sense, the book of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews form a trilogy of commentary all intended to interpret this one verse in Habakkuk. Indeed, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is one of the Bible's greatest verses. And this was the verse that caught the imagination of a young German monk named Martin Luther. As a young man, Luther had enrolled in an Augustinian monastery where he had earned a doctorate in theology. But Martin Luther's learning was empty scholarship. For the more he understood God's holiness, the more his heart was troubled, for he lacked the peace of God. The awareness of his sin tortured him. And in order to appease his conscience and squelch his guilt, he felt that his evil desires needed to be beaten out of him. He sought to deprive himself. He sought to starve himself. He would fast two weeks at a time. When temperatures dropped below freezing, he would sleep outside without a blanket to torture the sin out of him. At times he would beat his own body until it was black and blue and bleeding. He hoped that by punishing himself, he could rid himself and his body of its evil lusts. He went to confession so often that the abbot of the monastery finally told him, said, Martin, either go out and commit a sin worth confessing or just stop coming in here so often. In Rome, there is a cathedral called the Church of St. John. I've been there. I've seen this. In this church, there's a staircase that tradition says supposedly was brought from Jerusalem to Rome. The legend says that it was this staircase where Jesus stood during his trial before Pontius Pilate. These stairs are adorned with little pieces of glass mosaic that were supposedly to mark the spots where the drops of blood, of Jesus' blood, fell upon the steps. For centuries, penitents made pilgrimage just to climb these stairs on their knees and beat themselves with whips and kissed the mosaics. And it was in search of peace with God, peace for his troubled heart, that caused Martin Luther to make this pilgrimage to Rome. He crossed the Alps on foot. It was a dangerous journey. As a matter of fact, along the way he grew ill and he almost died. He was taken to a monastery and there the brothers nursed Luther back to health. And while recovering from his sickness, one of the monks suggested that he read the book of Habakkuk. Luther read the book that we're reading tonight. And he was particularly drawn to guess which verse? 
Chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by his faith. But at, the, at that point, Luther had no idea what it meant. Well, when Martin Luther finally arrived in Rome, he went to the church of St. John and he climbed this staircase. As he climbed each step, he would beat himself, scourge himself, try to atone, self-atone for his sins. He would kiss the mosaics, trying somehow to rid himself of his guilt and somehow earn God's favor. But halfway up the stairs, suddenly, the Holy Spirit spoke to Martin Luther and reminded him of Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live. By his faith. And this time, he understood that all his doing, that all his sacrificing, that all his suffering for God was unnecessary. For all that needed to be done for him to be just and right before God had already been done by Jesus Christ on the cross. All that God was asking of Luther and of us is to have faith, is to believe. Later, Martin Luther wrote of this experience. He wrote, Before these words broke upon my mind, I hated God. And I was angry with God. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Went back a different man. Luther laid that whip down at that very moment and he returned to his monastery in Wittenberg, Germany where he began what would become the Protestant Reformation. And what was the rallying cry for Luther and for the other reformers who would follow him? It continued to be Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The just shall live by his faith. And we would do well, my friends, to make this verse our rallying cry. The believer is not only saved by faith, but we live by faith. Not only does forgiveness of sin and a home in heaven come to us through faith, but likewise all God's blessings are granted by grace through faith. Joy and peace and assurance and fulfillment, gifts and callings, usefulness and spiritual maturity. Everything in the Christian life comes to us by grace through faith. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. There is nothing we can do to receive what God has earned. It's all his free gift, and we receive it by faith. See, this is the problem with legalism, with trying to earn God's favor. It's that it's never enough, and it's never quite clear. You see, when you're bartering with God for blessing, when you're scratching his back so he'll scratch yours, when you're trying to be good enough for God, how good is good enough? God's holy. His standards call for perfection. If it's up to me to be good enough for God, I'm doomed to the same frustrations Luther experienced. Besides, legalistic living is never quite clear. If it's up to me to perform, to live up to the standard, then which of the rules am I supposed to obey? The rules change from culture to culture and from person to person. Did you know in India, Christian women wear dresses that cover their bodies from the neck to the ankle 
but they leave the midriff bare. They consider this to be modest. On the other hand, in Trinidad, a Christian woman with her stomach showing would be frowned on. But she could wear a dress with a slit down the back and bare shoulder. No one would think anything about it there. In Japan, though, a Christian sister would never expose either her stomach or her shoulders. But she would think nothing of a short skirt that revealed her legs. This is the problem with legalism. It's a moving target. It changes from locale to locale, from tribe to tribe, from age to age. Legalism is a difficult lifestyle. You're never sure where you stand because the ground under you is always shifting. You're never enough. But God has made it so much simpler than legalism. Rather than giving us a list of rules and regulations, making our progress dependent on our performance, God has given us only one rule. The just shall live by his faith. Are you living by faith tonight? Are you trusting Jesus with your whole heart? Trust Jesus and he'll work in your life. I promise you he will. He'll cleanse you and he'll comfort you and he'll change you and he'll call you to himself and he'll consecrate you and dedicate you and then he'll crown you with his glory. He'll do all of that if you'll believe. Live by faith and you won't go wrong. Always remember, it's not by sight. It's not what we see. It's not by smarts. It's not what we can figure out. It's not by sentiment or how we feel. No, the just shall live by faith.